Welcome to the CP Podcast. My name is Jacob Ashworth. I am the Artistic Director of Cantata Profana, and I'm here today with my guest, Lee Dion. Good morning. Lee is one of our pianists, and he and I are about to embark on one of our Spotlight Series concerts where we do more intimate recitals of smaller ensembles. And this next one is at the Baruch Performing Arts Center on March 23rd, and we will be doing a recital of violin and piano music, a nice informal evening of different works with Stravinsky and Dalla Piccola, and then with harpsichord, some Bach, and a few other gems. Yeah, it's kind of a list of pieces that we've just been dying to play for the last few years since we've done a program together. That was the second movement of Claude Debussy's Sonata for Violin and Piano from 1917, and that was Lee and me at Sprague Hall at Yale. Lee and I met back at school, in grad school, when um, I showed up in New Haven, and he was one of the first people that I found, and then I asked him to play piano for absolutely everything. But tell us a little bit about you, and where you're from, and what you like to do, and a mini bio. Yeah, so um, yeah, Jacob and I met at Yale where I had already been for my undergrad for four years doing an undergraduate degree in literature. We had both just started out at the School of Music. I sat down and mentioned that I was a pianist and you immediately had this roster of pieces like I think uh, <laughs> Schubert uh, Fantasy, um, Strauss Sonata, that yes. was on there. Um, just, just really the hardest pieces the, written for piano. Exactly the violin. hardest imaginable combinations of duo pieces, and I was thrilled. Um, this is also the first violinist I had met in music school, and we just sort of went for it and dove in. Right, so we were at Yale together for a while. I guess I, I think of my myself as a musician starting um, from that point in grad school when I decided very seriously to commit to piano. But I started playing when I was four years old and chamber music was always a huge part of my life. I played in my first piano trio when I was 10. And I think actually uh, by the time I went away to boarding school, I think I was involved in four different chamber groups um, on Saturdays uh, just because I was that pianist who was happy to sight read anything and just loved playing chamber music. You are still Um, that pianist. (laughs) Right. So yeah, and so that's that actually pretty much kept me going for, for a long time. And then happily, yeah, as Jacob says, that's kind of where I am still and um, enjoying very much being that pianist with Cantata Profana. Um, and I do a few other things on the side. Now I have um, a piano trio, Merit's Trio, which is um, a lot of rehearsal time and commitment. And I'm also part of this program called Ensemble Connect at Carnegie Hall. 
That's a fellowship program I'm actually finishing up right now. It's it's been almost two years, and it's a really fantastic program um, for chamber performance, but also a bunch of other wonderful things in New York City. We do a ton of community performances, um, and I also go to a public school once a week in the Bronx. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit more, just just to focus in on sort of the the teaching element of it, uh, and just a little broader view of that for a second. Every week I go to uh, PS 107, which is an elementary school in Soundview, and I'm paired with a partner teacher, so their regular music teacher is also there. So a lot of the kids are, are learning keyboards already, um, so we actually have a, a battery of about, um, I think, 25 small electric keyboards with headphones, so they have a kind of keyboard lab on the side, and so sometimes we'll we'll work with that, and it's it's all ages that work with that. We have a kind of repertoire of varying degrees of difficulty and for some of them it'll be the first time they go to the instruments for some of them they've had some training already so I try to make the rounds and and work with as many of them individually as I can Um, actually even a minute with someone at the keyboard at that age can make such a difference if they're really concentrated and eager to learn I mean it's just wonderful to go in there every every morning that I do and see all of these bright faces and see the enthusiasm that only elementary school children can really have for pretty much anything. Um, it's been a great experience because it's not something that, um, that I signed up for specifically. We don't get to pick uh, what age group we work with. And I was actually um, most intimidated by working with elementary school kids. It's something I don't have a lot of experience in or I didn't before. I try to come in with uh, something that I'm really passionate about always, whether it's sharing a piece with them or just some sort of activity that I think is going to blow their minds um, as elementary school kids, like thinking about music as textures and asking them to think about their their clothing as texture and and music as texture and try to make comparisons there or responding to a, a picture. And um, really, I think of my role actually as just being as creatively disruptive as possible and um, trying to break up the routine of whatever they're taught to expect from coming into music class or any class, uh, try to make the classroom feel like as positive of an experience as possible and also try to make it feel like a, a space where their creativity is really valued and where they're free to contribute ideas or ask questions or be curious because I think that that's one of the most wonderful things about music or any art form at that age. It sounds like I would love to be a six-year-old in your class. <laughs> yeah, I, tr- I, tr- I try to have fun, too. <laughs> this next track is Zeus, Movement 2, from Susan Kander's Hermes Tensa, the cycle for violin and piano that Lee and I recorded and released last year on MSR Records. <laughs> Thank you. 
As a violinist in school, um, often it feels like sort of a, a a lottery or a game of luck or some something very chancy to sort of find a pianist first of all who's willing to um, take the time and play for play for you in lessons or in recitals or in studio class. Because as a violinist, as as opposed to pianist, we need a, a partner so much of the time. We spend everyday practicing on our own, but in fact the music that we're practicing most of the time is not solo music. And so um, I was already very amazed that Lee was willing to learn a lot of the repertoire that we want, that I wanted to play with him, and then to discover then after a few years somebody who's really a kindred spirit in a chamber music way, and somebody who's much, much more than just sort of collaborating with you when possible, but actually um, a musical force that you want to tie yourself to. It was a really exciting thing to discover. And so uh, f- after a few years when Lee and I started playing together, it made um, it sort of made sense to try to tackle some other repertoire together as as a new duo idea, as a new, as a new sort of combined personality. Absolutely. Um, I think I mentioned already that at times in my life, I've felt like you know, that pianist who sight reads everything and is just happy to, to work on whatever project. And for me, being at Yale School of Music was a really interesting experience because it's such a high pressure, intensive environment for the piano department, especially just working on um, polishing your solo playing and dedicating yourself to that work um, at the highest level. And I think it really turns out some incredible pianists as a result of that but at the same time there can be a mentality and conservatory of compartmentalization and that you know you're here for piano or you're here for violin and for me that never really made complete sense and I never felt that chamber music was emphasized enough so I've always tried to take that that level of care about your work and really um, bring it into a field where I'm also most fulfilled and happy to be working. We were playing together as a duo uh, towards the end of school, and then after school we ended up going to the Banff Center in Canada, in Alberta, where they have uh, an amazing facility that you can go to for residencies during the year, and we were up there in snowy 
a Rocky Mountain February, just working on um, some Beethoven and Elgar and Mozart and other very classic rep, which I think at the time for both of us was something that we were kind of missing from some of our other engagements. We were both doing a, a lot of new music, a lot of 20th century works, um, and Lee was starting work on harpsichord. I was doing a lot of Baroque violin. And this was a chance to sort of just go sort of back to our roots a little bit mm. and think about the yeah. things that we actually, you know, have degrees in and things like that. Yeah. And, um, and spend time working on those. And we did a couple of recordings up there, one of which was a Beethoven Sonata. And we're about to hear the third movement of that, Sonata number no. three in E flat. And you can imagine Lee and me up in the green Canadian Rockies in a beautiful studio. about some of the pieces on the show yeah great let's do it yeah um, one of the pieces that we are very excited to bring on this concert is a great set by john cage of six melodies for violin and keyboard and that's an intentionally vague title that he chose um violin and keyboard means violin and any keyboard you want, and I have heard these recorded or performed for violin and piano, violin and harpsichord, violin and guitar, violin and harp, violin and vibraphone, anything with a certain number of pitches that's that's laid out, at least enough like a keyboard, I guess, if you have harp, <laughs> yeah. stretching it a little bit, um, but it actually sounds really great. Mm -hmm. And sure. the way that he does it, it's this whole set of six, and he puts a page of instruction at the top for the violin saying, well, here are your about 20 different notes that I'm going to give you. And anytime one of them appears in the various octave, you're going to play it on, on this string in this way. And it, it was fascinating for me to see that because when I first heard the work and I listened to them a lot, cause they're, they're very catchy and I really like the tunes and I listened to them a bunch and I would never have guessed that there's such a conscriptive uh, set of instructions at the top. And so I always love that when you look at a score and you see something that's absolutely not what you heard on um, on a recording or in a performance, and you realize that that sort of uh, that way of of being so explicit about every little detail did not get in the way of a really free style of writing. Yes, and creating something that is still just as he calls it, a, a mel they're melodies. They're yes. just melodies. I. I don't know, people always talk about Cage as such an important conceptual composer in the 20th century, and I think a lot of it is, it's not whether or not he's using, you know, like, the Book of Changes to structure a piece, or he is 
as- asking us to um, meditate on um, silence or the lack of silence, silence in our environment, right? These are some of the more um, well-known examples of ways that he's he's tried to expand the definition of what a concert piece can be. I think his attitude towards his parameters is so important. For me, Cage is kind of a, a precursor to game pieces um, because the um, you know he might be organizing his pitches according to a really specific system, but he's recognizing that he is an individual and making very arbitrary choices within that system sometimes. So it, it doesn't feel um, tight or rigid. This next piece we're going to hear is from a performance of ours a few years ago at Issue Project Room in Brooklyn. It's John Cage's Credo in Us, which he wrote in the 1940s, both as uh, a tribute to the U.S., us, but also to his partner, Merce Cunningham. It's performed here by Lee with Terry Sweeney, Mario Shinaga, and Garrett Arney, three percussionists, one of whom plays the phonograph and radio. So you might have noticed in uh, the excerpt that we just heard what you probably guessed was a radio um, as it was originally for this composition. We actually used um, a podcast or a series of podcasts on shuffle play. And um, this is embodying an aspect of um, aleatoric composition in Cage's work, which was a term that um, he coined, at least with respect to music, the idea of leaving aspects of of structure or content up to chance. And I think what's interesting is that in the work that um, we're going to be performing, uh, these chance parameters um, kind of occur earlier in his compositional process. He uses them to determine some of the durations of pitches that he'll be using. And I think it's a way of him um, trying to distance himself from um, that um, necessity of compositional voice where he's just deciding everything. Um, but also it's it's great when you can hear examples of it like in this use of the radio where it is left up to chance at the last moment, but he knows that it's going to be so compelling and that that use of it is so effective no matter what comes on. So I think one of the things about uh, playing a, a recital for violin and piano or something that looks like a recital is that um, 
it's it's a little bit more formalized than the average CP concert. So on a CP concert, if you have a transition between pieces that is bold and unexpected and involves going from a really intimate um, voice and piano duet to suddenly something with two percussionists and a large ensemble, that's automatically a chance for the audience to breathe, um, for everyone to have a reaction and maybe think about that connection. Um, and sometimes um, concert hall performances of chamber music where you have actually the same players and the same ensemble piece after piece, I think don't give audiences that same opportunity. Even if you're leaving a, a minute between pieces for applause and there's just something about the ritual of it, I think that is a little stiff and formalized. So I think um, one of the things that you Jacob have brought me into as a as a performance medium is um, the house concert setting and really coming to enjoy and appreciate what it means to give a performance in this way um, with this really natural alternation and transitioning between performance and speech and I think that that's something else that also gives the audience this opportunity to breathe and to relate to the work. Yes, we have loved doing a lot of house concerts for CP over the years. And sometimes that means you're in a fancy donor's beautiful Soho loft apartment. And sometimes it's just, you know, at a at a friend's house who has a piano and wants to have some people over. And you get this informal setting where um, all, all performance mistakes are quickly forgiven and everything good that you can bring is hugely rewarded and audiences are just so willing to so much more ready to be pleased and excited about what you're playing yeah, and essentially reminding people why they're there to yeah. listen in the first place yeah hopefully and in a way it's the ideal setting and in fact we are chamber musicians foremost most of us and chamber music was never really a performance art the way that it is today. Chamber music was originally something. It was for people to play in their own homes, for their own families, for themselves. It's music that's much more to be performed by the performers for the performers and not presented to an audience like a museum piece. So that's something that's really reflected in the show title, of course, Stravinsky Salon, which was your idea, Jacob, um, but which I... I just love that that was your first reaction to uh, we're going to program Stravinsky duo concert time is, oh, let's call it Stravinsky Salon. Let's have Stravinsky in a salon setting. Um, and of course, Stravinsky is not such a chamber composer in that sense of, you know, something you'd expect in your living room um, in the way that maybe Mozart or Beethoven <laughs> right, are. Right. But um, I think that's a, a little bit of what we're trying to bring to the space at Baruch to the concert hall setting is also a bit of that um, warmth and welcoming informality of the salon environment. Thank you so much for joining us today and for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to us on iTunes to catch our next episodes. And we hope to see you on March 23rd at 8 p.m. at the Baruch Performing Arts Center. Tickets at www.cantataprofana.com. And Lee and I wanted to leave you today with one of our favorite tracks. This is the fourth movement of Susan Kander's Hermes Tensa from our album last year. It's called The Liar. And... It features the violin and piano imitating that ancient Greek instrument that Hermes is said to have invented.